0: This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great
1: minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas, dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas. They've shaped the norms of future
0: generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions
1: through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having
0: the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers, because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation.
1: So here we are again, after a hurricane. Indeed.
0: Which you got to experience,
1: and I got to miss. Yeah. I was
0: very lucky. I lost internet for 30 minutes and had to stop playing video games online and just had to play them single player. Boy, the 21st century is difficult, isn't it? It
1: really is. It makes you think that all of the problems in this conversation are so far away. Exactly. As long as you don't look outside the window and see some sort of, like, giant wave coming over the shore in Red Hook or somewhere else in Brooklyn. Yeah. It sort of made me feel, you know... Safe up in a little ivory tower. <laughs> oh, funny you mention that, doesn't it? We're there, I mean, okay, so here we are. Today we're going to talk about Occupy Wall Street, people who are going to be banging on the gates of the ivory tower. Unless they came out of the ivory tower, and they're banging on the gates of the corporate ivory tower. Right. And that's actually a good thing to talk about. So we've talked to Cameron Witten before about Occupy, and he had a good critique of the ivory tower background of a lot of participants in this project. That's something that we aren't going to get into as much in this conversation with Priscilla Grimm. But we talk about class a lot, even though we don't specifically
0: talk about the Ivory Tower too much. Yeah, this is cool because we are going to talk about class in a very different way than we had with Taylor. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about class in a different way than we did with Cameron. Yep. And we're really going to start to see some of the tensions between class and other sacred cows of the left. Ooh, you mean the environment. I do mean the environment. Which, of course, I never like
1: to see the tension between these things. And uh, it's not pretty. It's really not. So much of our environmental quality we take for granted because a lot of people don't have access to things. And that's something that Priscilla Grimm is going to bring in front and center. Yes. So let's give people a little more background on her. She is the co founder of the We Are the 99% Tumblr blog. It involved people from all over the country sending in pictures of themselves generally holding up a sheet of paper telling their story about their economic hardships and their background. She also does media outreach for OccupyWallST.org, and she's the co-editor of the Occupied Wall Street Journal.
2: Well, I mean, there's a couple different ways I got involved in Occupy. The first is I've been an activist in one way or another since I was a teenager, which is many, many, many years at this point. I had not been an activist for like several years before Occupy because um, I have a daughter and she's nine and having a child and working and going to school full time does not lend a lot of extra time to do activist work. I was on Facebook and looking at a video that had just come out. It was this band called Manu Chow. And they had brought organizers in to their concert and talk about this action that they were going to do called Occupy Wall Street. And the minute I heard it, my brain exploded. I was like, This is going to work. At that time, I'd lived in New York, you know, over 10 years. And the financial district, if you're ever there during the daytime, I get so buttoned up and so sterile and so without organic life. To even think about the idea of activists in that space, it didn't matter if it was 15 of them, it was gonna make the papers, it was gonna make the news, people were gonna pay attention to it. So I found this great website called occupywallst.org, and they had a lot of information to basically make this happen out of nowhere. The closest thing to activism that I had done prior to this, like the most recent, was I worked with this organization called the Association of Independent Video and Filmmakers, and we had worked on a national action that I had actually designed to help fight back against media concentration. And one of the tools in my belt was utilizing the Indy Media network online. And this is a network of websites in which anybody can post to. And so what I did was I sat down and posted on 60 different sites in one night. Occupy Wall Street is going to happen. You better come out. It's going to be the biggest thing. You're going to want to tell your kids about this and it worked.
1: <laughs> so you just did it.
2: I just did it, and because I was like, well here's the information, I know how to disseminate it, I'll do it. And so, the next week, I wound up going to an organizing meeting at Tompkins Square Park, and I met up with somebody who was, he's like, oh, so what, what have you, have you been involved or anything? And I told him about the indie media thing, and he was like, okay, come with me. This is the outreach group, just sit here, listen, contribute, and I'm putting you on the organizer list right now.
1: So it seems like you're kind of going about your life. Yeah, and it's like this thing just blows up, and next thing you know you're in it.
2: Yeah, well i was I was unemployed too at the time, and I had student loans. I was going to school. So I was in a really kind of privileged moment. So there was a lot of things that a lot of support base that I had so that I could dedicate time to it. I really kind of feel that like everything I did prior to that was so that I could perform as I did then.
1: What made that an important moment and what was the statement that you wanted to make?
2: Well, you know, I grew up in a small town, Tennessee. You know, I'm 38. Okay, so I'm almost 40. I was born in the 70s. I watched this small town move from this area where it was like mom and pop shops where my parents would get loans from the bank by just talking to someone, where we had a guy that we would go to fix our car. It wasn't like ideal, you know? At the same time, my mom is Puerto Rican. She was asked to leave a city council meeting because she was Spanish and from New York. Yeah, so and that was like in the 80s but i watched you know this area of the country move from this place where you could you could make a living independently on your own small business person to a landscape that is covered with franchises and big box stores and these huge corporations that have no leniency for the communities around them that don't treat their workers well you know Trying to find jobs in that area of the country that were beyond like a McJob was close to impossible. And I basically kept moving north because it seemed like there was more opportunity of just places to get hired. I went from waiting tables in Tennessee where I was getting like $7 an hour or something to moving to Columbus, Ohio I was making $250 a night. I hadn't seen someone make that much money in cash in a night that wasn't a drug dealer, like in my life. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh my God. And this was a—he is the locally owned restaurant, you know, fine dining, whatever, but that wasn't didn't exist. And if it did exist down south, you couldn't work there unless you were white. And in New York, people think I'm white, but in the south, I'm dark enough for people to ask me where are you from, you know, and um, wound up working for NGOs here, and then I um, found out this really weird kind of career called prospect research. And what this job entails, it's online research through uh, databases that are usually used by uh, attorneys for big nonprofits. I worked for the New York Public Library, and I worked for the Bronx Zoo. At the New York Public Library for an entire year, I was in a room surrounded by file cabinets on the 1%. They had been keeping financial records on every family of wealth in the United States since the library was founded by the Astor family. And it was my job to find out how much money people still had or what was liquid so that we could then ask for an appropriate amount for them. So I was actually on the team that got $100 million from this financier called Steve Schwartzman, this hedge funder, he's like the king hedge funder. And in this research, you know, I profiled families, I profiled individuals, and all of a sudden, I'm seeing the titans of business in this country none of them came from nothing and you know you look at these families and they have generations of people who don't work and you know from my activist background all of a sudden I'm seeing names of children and grandchildren that I had seen in activist circles and I'm like oh well what do you know how did they have money to not work for years and cause all this trouble that had no results awesome all of the biggest loudest activists on the left are children of privilege who none of this affects them directly and that's why it all fails. And that's what's wrong with the left. And this is what I had like just gotten, I mean, and it made sense to me. I was tasked with the privilege of putting together names for parties in which the net worth of the room was over $40 billion. That was my job.
1: That's kind of inconceivable to me.
2: Yeah, like the New York Public Library is like, it's the heart of wealth in the United States. You know, and it it sucks because it's really amazing what they're doing. But again, a lot of these very wealthy people put their money into it because it's like a soft way to look philanthropic without actually affecting any real change. I sat in a fundraising meeting one day where this woman told her fundraising officer... I'm giving you $25,000 and you better make these ESL classes happen on Monday nights because that's when Rosita gets off her shift. Her maid. So her maid could learn English.
1: It's it's like <laughs> you really pulled back the curtain and looked into a world that most people never get to see. No. How do you articulate that? So. We've, we've got this point of poverty. We've got this weird moment of where you're seeing the workings of kind right. of the upper, upper classes of our society. right? And then all of a sudden, you're going along in your life, and Occupy blows up. What's the biggest crisis it needs to address? Kind corporate of, power. What is the state of corporate power in America today?
2: Well, we don't have a government anymore. We have a management company that is run by corporate interests meaning they give lots of money to elect candidates. I'll just be very generous and say they're not promising anything, but what they are promising is access. Access that you or I cannot have. It's a different phone call when I call up Mayor Bloomberg and say Barclays calls Mayor Bloomberg. Barclays just built a huge stadium in the middle of Brooklyn, paid a lot of money to make that happen to the city of New York. Mayor Bloomberg is going to answer the Barclays CEO phone call before me. Even though I've lived here for 12 years, I'm invested in the community. My daughter goes to a school here, but that makes no difference. But the Barclays CEO, who's from London, he gets access because he built a stadium.
1: What's wrong with that?
2: What's not wrong with that? (laughs) I mean... Um, you're putting business interests ahead of your community. Instead of businesses having to give an appropriate amount in tax money to the government that can then support social services, NGOs in this country have to go and beg corporations for money. And what winds up happening is that these institutions that fund the NGOs will give just enough to keep it going but not enough to actually solve the problem, you know? So,
1: so there's sort of a facade of an institutionalized facade of change and reform, right? Which is just enough to be a steam valve. So there's no real change and reform.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And the problem is, is that we can't progress as a society. We're limited. Our abilities to evolve are limited. Um, because of this, because we're, we're not able to dream further than the next paycheck. And when your worldview is that small, your ability to dream big and bright and positively is squashed. That's everything that's wrong with a corporately run environment. I mean, The Guardian came out with this thing this summer that, you know, there's over $21 trillion in offshore bank accounts held by about 90,000 individuals worldwide like we would be looking at such a different Southeast Asia we would be looking at such a different African continent we would be looking at such a different society if those resources were put into worldwide healthcare, if they were put into worldwide public transportation that people could depend on things that help make us sustainable
1: so if we follow kind of our status quo yeah where does this get us
2: well, I mean, I think we're starting to see where it's going to get us. There was a big uh, New York Times front page story, I guess it was last month, talking about how uh, debt collection companies are now partnering up with uh, local attorney generals to be able to use their letterhead in their collection letters. So even though you're not gonna actually go to jail because debtor prisons are illegal, they give the, um, the idea, the impression that you could. Then for debtor's prisons to be renewed, it's not that far a jump because already you're starting to socialize people into thinking that having debt is criminal and bad and it's your fault. It's horrible enough for the attorney general to come after you. So, you know, because you have like this $3 billion prison system that is only going to go so far. You know, with the new Jim Crow, they have effectively silenced black and Latin men in this country because they're in jail, away, in a box, somewhere. You know, so we have that. Um, You know, an increased anesthetized society where everybody is on some kind of drug or another because you're ill in some way or another and you need to take a pill for that. So, you know, the drug companies have completely over medicated us then in our environment, I mean, we're starting to see it now, like how between the ice caps melting. I mean, I'm not a doomsday person where it's like, oh, we have six years to live. I hate those people. I want to hit them. But, you know, our climate is going to get a lot, a lot worse. And we're going to continue to see like big natural disasters.
1: So you've got this massive class inequality that develops. You've got
2: Oh, but concurrent. the 1%, this is a thing, though. But the 1% is not going to be affected by any of this. They go to their own schools. They have their own social gatherings. They have their own gated communities. They have their own transportation systems. They're completely divorced from the society. However, they're going to still need people to work for them, and they're going to wind up having people serving them food who don't have health insurance. And all of a sudden, they're going to be exposed to the same maladies that we are exposed to just because they're in the same room.
1: And it seems like there's also and an And it's issue going that to
2: be their own undoing and society fails. It'll be awesome. Now. Well, and it seems like they're also <laughs>
1: wired into this big economy where if you lose the middle class or you lose, you know, the lower class and they're not buying on credit anymore, it seems like the 1% have a real crisis of wealth because they are ultimately wired into this larger economic system and they they aren't the ones doing all of the buying
2: yeah well they've never been doing the ones doing all the buying I mean we've done enough buying for them <sighs> we buy clothes that wear out in six months because we can't afford actual clothes that are made well so we're in this consumer wheel that we have to keep going in right and you talk to the more radical lifestyle kind of anarchist people. Like I was at a party one time where I was talking to some guy who had been profiled by Adbusters cause he was a big climate change guy. And he basically told me all this stuff that I needed to be making my own food. I needed to be making my own clothes. I needed, you know. So you're telling me that as a working mother going to school full time, along with those responsibilities in which I'm at home studying most of the time, I should be making my daughter's clothes. I should be whipping up meals from scratch. Um, No. (laughs) And the thing is that we don't need like drastic changes. We just need to remix it a little bit, you know, just to skew it just enough that it'll start to topple the whole thing. But you have to bring people on to help make that shift happen. And I was just like, and this is why you people fail. I'm sorry. You it's know, a like, classism
1: within environmentalism. It's
2: total classism in every single way, and it's insulting.
1: Is there a difference between an environmental collapse and a social collapse? It's I mean, all are ti- these things it's so all, tied it's together? It's all that-
2: tied together. It's all tied together. I mean, it's just like the Occupy saying about all of our grievances are connected. It's all tied together. None of this exists in a silo. I actually am more conscious of environmentalism than my friends who live outside of New York City. You know, you can't be obsessive about it, but it is a piece to the entire pie Mm -hmm. that we need to pay attention to. And if we did end, you know, this lobbying of corporations and this access that they have, I can guarantee you that we would have so many gains in environmental issues that we can't even start dreaming of them. Because, you know, when you get down to like... Problems of pollution. It all comes down to a company that's doing that,
1: paid for the privilege to do that. And a mode of industry. Other people I've spoken to, say um, a peak oil analyst who I met pretty early in the project, Jan Lundberg. He was talking about sort of look. The issue is a perpetual growth system, and this has come up with other thinkers as well. But people have talked about. The system is essentially kind of an environmental pyramid scheme built on limitless growth, whether of population or of consumer goods in a finite system. Um, They say, look, even if the system was totally equitable and fair, it will burn out and collapse because it's just burning too much stuff up.
2: I mean, the thing is, a lot of those people haven't really spent real time in the middle of nowhere, which is, like, a lot of the world. (laughs) I mean, anybody, you know, it's like these people are like, you know, people from outside the United States shouldn't move here because we don't have room or resources or anything. It's like, really, have you flown over Montana lately? Like... (laughs) Have you been through Alabama? (laughs) There's so much land and it's gorgeous and pristine. And, you know, just, I mean, we have so much, so many resources. It's just not where people want to live. You know, I think we're so far away from total, utter, like, climate collapse. I went to Nebraska to uh, work with Ella from OccupyTogether.org on her website and we're driving through just fields and fields and fields <laughs> and um and she was like yeah there was this report that just came out a couple weeks ago that if we leveraged all of the wind power in Nebraska we could have electricity for all of middle america and if puerto rico like put down like solar panels everywhere and you know wind turbines what, what do they need oil for? You
1: know? Yeah, I mean, I've spoken so, to a lot of people who are sort of energy systems thinkers, and mm-hmm. they talk about how if you look at the embodied energy of something like a wind turbine or a solar mm-hmm. panel, it stems back to all of these mines that are operated by gas-powered machines, and there's right. really, like, you get into this whole production chain that spider webs out from the windmill. So the windmill actually becomes really expensive and never even pays back for itself. Yeah. It taps into this big... Infrastructure of oil, which is just really cheap still, or coal, which is really cheap. And so I think for them, they would agree that land wouldn't necessarily be the issue, but I think they often see, specifically thinking of Wes Jackson here, talking about energy and the embodied energy of things. And for the thinkers who've talked about that sort of resource limit, a lot of them have said, like, hey, we need to think about a society that has a much, well, one, probably a lower population, and two, different material expectations. Right. Um, Absolutely. And is that part of it? Hopefully. Because, I mean, that connects back in an odd way to that sort of irritating anarchist who is talking to you, (laughs) right? right? Because, like, it seems like we're in a bind here where it's like you kind of can't opt out, right? We live in the real world. Like, you sort of have to play by a lot of its rules. Yeah. At the same time, how do we recalibrate to a simpler World, like I wouldn't know how to make clothes, you know, (laughs) it's like I'm not going to become a scrimshaw artist. And, like,
2: well, like, I mean, in my personal life, I try to buy used clothes as much as possible. Craigslist is my friend. We have to start looking at that because, you know, the West uses like what is it, 70% of the resources of the world, and that's insane.
1: Do we have the maturity as a people to say, we dial it back, or do we hit a point like that and have a tantrum because we're reaching the end of a certain level of wealth? That's assuming that point ever arrives, right? Yeah,
2: I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope is that I work on a lot of the social media stuff for Occupy, and I actually spend way too many hours reading comments, And talking to people who are outside of the movement, who, you know, their first exposure is like a Facebook page or a tweet or something. People are starting to get it, you know. um, So you think you're
1: seeing a rise in awareness of
2: Totally. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see like an awareness of like consumerism and access and all of this. And people who probably didn't give it a thought six months ago.
1: What's the ideal future look like?
2: Okay, if I were king.
1: Yes, yes, that's the <laughs> scenario I want. What's the if I were king if scenario? If I
2: were king, I would be taxing corporations at 80% of their profits. We would put all the money into an uh, education system that would follow graduates through postgrad. It would be highly competitive, but you would get the best out of people if I were king, this money would be used for everybody to have health care. If I were king, there would be public transportation everywhere that was needed. If I were king, we would have sustainable energy that was available to everybody. Um, the thing is that if we just give people what they need to survive and to thrive, we're all going to be able to move forward. You know, maybe there would be like a five to 10 year period in which people were just slothfully awful. But after getting everything that they needed, then it would change. And it would be like, okay, what are you gonna do now? What do you do with the rest of your life? You don't have to worry about any of this anymore. And I think that we would see the best come out of our society.
1: And so in a world where you're not king, but we can work towards a better future. <laughs> 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 um, right we've got this huge plurality of ideas right. about what makes the world good, right. right? And there are some interesting assumptions about human nature that I think were implicit in, in right. what you were just saying. Right. Um, and there are other people have very different assumptions about human nature, that if right. you give people a coddled existence, and I'm sure they would use words like coddled, yeah. um you can't expect anything from them. But I live in New York City where,
2: you know, we actually get, like, more coddled than anywhere in the country. Like, my daughter has had health insurance since she was born. Not because I could afford it, but because the state paid for it. You know, the state paid for a lot of my daycare. Mm -hmm. Instead of that coddling me into becoming, like, some kind of welfare mother who does nothing but smoke cigarettes and have inappropriate relationships, I went to school... I was working full-time. I tripled my income in three years. I mean, it was kind of like once like that piece of it was taken care of for me, I could do the rest. I've never worked harder in my life than when I came here, but I had the biggest safety net of any place I've ever lived. So, I mean, just, you know, but they'd probably
1: like, say, are you an exception? You know, someone who's particularly Somebody would say I'm an exception,
2: sure. But I think there's a lot of people in this town that, you know, have the same experience. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be people who take advantage of things. And there's always going to be people who are lazy. And there's always going to be people who are abusive. But I think that's not everyone. That's a minority. The number of people who would benefit outweigh that minority.
1: In a lot of conversations I have, I always see this sort of balance between people who are thinking individually, people who are thinking more collectively. Right. And it seems like here there's a big sense that, okay, we need to think collectively. We need to ensure a certain minimum. But there's also a sense that by doing that, you enable kind of an individuality in which people can push forward on their own. So that's interesting. I don't think I've seen anyone who balanced it quite like that. But I want to go a little further in this sort of direction about how are we getting this idea of good? Beneath every conversation I've had, it doesn't matter how secular or how sacred. Like, right. there's an irrational sense of the good. Right. You know, and I think because that's been,
2: everybody's good at heart, like Anne Frank said, everybody's. But everyone good. has a
1: different definition of good. Yeah. That seems irrational, and that's where I wonder: can a conversation about this even happen? You know, if, if we frame it something it is happening. Like, um. Where?
2: Everywhere. I mean, if you're just walking around the city, just listen and you'll hear it. I live in New York City, I'm all over the place, in every single neighborhood district, and I was sitting in a Starbucks near NYU, which is very famously like filled with like clueless undergraduates who are very <laughs> rich and just say ridiculous things. And I heard three different conversations within 15 minutes of people talking about resource inequality, and these were not activists. If that, those conversations can be happening there. And at the same time, I'm also hearing in my neighborhood, which is not very upwardly mobile, which a lot of uh, people who have come from other countries, they're getting it. Like, you know, the conversations are happening. They're slowly spreading out. But we've also, um, John Steinbeck talks about it that, and this was in like the 30s and the 40s. He's like, yeah, Americans like to think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And we're finally cracking through that. And um, people are understanding that it's not their fault, that they're not multimillionaires, <laughs> that it's just the way the system works. <laughs> and, um, and once you know, we have a quorum on that in society, there's no stopping us as far as demanding what we need to live and to just be happy. We have this phone number at uh, OccupyWallaceT.org. We're still getting phone calls every day from people across the country saying, please keep doing what you're doing. The media says that you're dead. We know that you're not. Whatever you can do, do it. Keep it in the news. Keep going. All of us are depending on you. We don't have the time or the brain space to engage with this, but we know that you do, so keep it up. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so I mean is is there a point at which it would feel like things weren't changing at which you would say that's it or is this something that you'll just always do
2: oh god I, I really don't know I mean I'm really at that place right now thinking about that you know cause I'm I, I just went back to uh, full time work last week and you know these are questions that I kind of ask myself every day as I'm doing my job um But, you know, I'm working as a temp. I have no benefits. I have no sick days. My kid is in between health insurance right now because I didn't renew her Medicaid. Um, Nothing's changed. The conversation has changed, but fundamentally nothing has changed. And um, I think until something actually changes, I'm going to find room in my life to work on it. And um, maybe I'll be the last crazy person in Tompkins Square Park saying, you kids, the corporations are ruining you. But, you know, maybe that's just my thing. That's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe that's my, you know, trajectory. Um, But I, I really feel hope because, I mean, I've seen the response to everybody and what we're doing and the support And I just know if we can just get enough people in the streets and we become enough of a threat and enough of a nuisance, things will shift. I just have to hope that. I mean, after giving up so much of my life to this, um, you know, it's kind of like when um, vets come back from war and the anti-war protesters are like, what are you doing? You know, they're screaming at some man who has just had guns shot in his face and telling him everything that you went through for two years is absolutely wrong and why did you do that? And his answer is, I don't know, I just needed a job. We need to do this. I think a lot of other people know that we need to do this and hopefully there'll be something that changes
0: so there's an obvious direction to go here in our in our outro we could be talking about occupy the success or the failure of a movement and you know what i don't really care (laughs) i mean that's not entirely true but that's less interesting to me than some of the other things in this conversation and i think you probably agree with me it's been discussed a lot there's exactly and i'm more interested in talking about something that we were talking about before this conversation even started the clash between egalitarianism and environmentalism yeah and it was this awful realization that oh my god
1: if you really want to do anything environmental you create havoc for the poor you deny them a lot of opportunities and if you really want to bring and if you the poor bring on board
0: onto a uh, middle class lifestyle, then that yields a just cataclysmic environmental disaster. Right. And
1: is the first person to really talk about this sort of tension. We've talked to a lot of environmental thinkers. We've talked to a lot of class thinkers. Often they're interested and sympathetic in each other's ideas. Often they hold ideas about both of those things. But she's the first one who's really said, Look, class first the environmental stuff it's serious but it's overblown i mean she says that she wants to hit the environmental doomsayers in the head right (laughs) (laughs) this is the other part that her her conversation really was just a lot of fun to have and i think that probably comes across she knows how to turn a phrase really Mm -hmm. well
0: let's just jump right into that shall we
1: yeah hit the doomsayers in the head all right okay so environmentalism She thinks that we have a lot of available land, that we have a lot of available resources. The problem is in distribution. Mm -hmm. And most of her background is in looking at the 1% and their massive wealth and inequality. It was so much fun to go through that section, the if I were king section. I kind of want to ask everyone that now, but I don't think most people would play along. But She was having a great time with it. But what she talks about is really interesting, because what she's outlining, the best case scenario here... Is like a well, Sweden. <laughs> it's very comfortable, <laughs> no, it's educated, middle class, heavily taxed, good social safety. State. Yeah. yeah. Who's going to complain about that? Probably not the Swedes. No. Polar bears. Polar bears might. Oh. And Sweden does have a lot of heavy industry.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is finally where we can talk about this. It turns out, if you look at Sweden, My God, it seems like a fantastic place to live. But if you start looking at those big systems, again, that we got from from Jackson, you really start to see these apparent socialist Edens be just as culpable for the environmental collapse as a country like the United States. Can we scale up prosperity globally? Can we even do it
1: nationally without stimulating an enormous amount of consumerism. And that's something that Priscilla touches on a little bit, but not too much. You know, how do we rein in our expectations
0: materially? And then what's the environmental footprint of that? Right. Very few people in this project have been willing to say we can't have everything. That's true. And that was something when we talked about Corton's conversation,
1: Mm -hmm. he talks about scaling down. He talks about getting rid of waste. But there's a real reluctance to
0: say, well, no, you're probably going to have to do without some technology. This is, this is where Jackson comes back in talking about, in 100 years, we'll be back to animal power farming. Right. And
1: Jackson's no anti-technologist at all. But he's a real pragmatist in terms of, if you want to live in a healthy ecosphere, to use his term, you just can't have it all. That means letting go of some things that are really central to sort of our vision of A good life and a progressive future, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: technologically progressive. The car is one of those indicators of, you know, having arrived in the middle class, right? You are mobile. You are able to get to work and back without depending on the whims of public transportation or walking. Right. Uh, That suddenly opens up the amount, you know, you can buy more food because you don't have to carry it. You can go farther afield for a better job. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing. This brings you up into the middle class. The Tata is this uh, $2,000 car that they've developed in India. Well, what happens if suddenly all of India is able to have a car? What does the sky look like? And I think what Priscilla would ask us in
1: response would be, well, why do you have to have something as dirty as a car? Why not have windmills for all those people? Why not have you know mass transit that's green? She gives us the example of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. If you just covered Nebraska with wind turbines... Could you power the Midwest? Now, whether or not that's feasible, I mentioned the Jackson's example of embodied energy. Right. And the fact that every one of those is built
0: on a different energy infrastructure. What are the metals that go into the windmill? Where do those come from? Mines. How are the mines powered? Probably not windmill energy. Uh, How do we store the windmill energy for when it's not windy? Well, we store those in massive batteries. What is putting the windmills on top of Nebraska do to Nebraska's wildlife?
1: What birds are flying through Nebraska? Nebraska is not empty. What does it do to the
0: property of the people there? It's a very anthropocentric view, for sure. But it's also a very isolated view. We can put up a bunch of windmills in Nebraska, and that will power the entire Midwest. Is looking only at the windmills and the Midwest... Just trying to play the windmill situation out one ply deep becomes, well, it becomes too much for the human mind to hold. It does, because immediately you're thinking, well, how do we get energy from the
1: windmills to the other things? Do we have cars that are electrically powered? Do we have to build a new auto infrastructure based on electric power? The footprint is big Mm -hmm. for any sort of change like that, and we can lose track of some of that stuff, especially... In the post-industrial U.S., when we have this conversation about what would we like in terms of an egalitarian United States,
0: what does that mean for production in China? And something I think we've brought up before, even on top of that, never mind the environmental issues. Is it even possible to bring everybody up to the same level? Right. Everything is made somewhere. Everything is is made from things that are mined or harvested and that's somewhere.
1: That's the Zerzan critique. I suppose the response to that is, well, you can have all of those jobs
0: be well-paid. <laughs> <laughs> Which comes down to some fundamental critique of the economy. Is that even possible to have everything be well-paid, or is the economic system that we're based on, does it fundamentally require some people to be screwed? And part of the
1: economics Conversation is always a psychological conversation. Is there always going to be someone who undercuts you, regardless of what the economic system is? All of these things get very deep. And at some point, it seems like by saying, I would really like everyone to be well paid, to work in all the jobs that currently exist, and then to have a middle class life in an environmentally sound world, is saying, I want utopia. We just talked to Claire Evans. Utopia is a hard thing to get into. Anything that's totalizing like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult to think about how do you do that and still have a plurality. And it makes you wonder, I mean, that ties us back into Torcello. Can you have a plurality in which someone isn't always doing better than someone else? Is hierarchy just inevitable with plurality? What a mess!
0: Dear listeners, that was the conversation. That's why we're doing this. I don't think we're going to find any answers here. But just to be thinking about these things and and to jump from Occupy Wall Street to a conversation that broad about that many different things is what makes this project. It's why I'm still working on this thing. The fact that we're able to. (laughs) We have to be having that conversation we just had.
1: On a fairly regular basis. Yeah. But usually more edited. That was Priscilla Grimm, recorded
0: October 10th, 2012, at her apartment in Brooklyn, New York. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at... At Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul.